You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 627 for September 27th, 2023. On this episode, pianist and keyboardist Kate Dutton. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Kate talks about pickleball. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show and occasional behind-the-scenes info or other bonus material. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This episode was brought to you by Christian Aspelin. Thanks, Christian. Kate Dutton's new album is called, appropriately enough, Keyboards. Here's the opening track. Dutton, welcome to the Jazz Session. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Very happy to be here. It is my pleasure to have you. I have actually uh, really been into your music for quite a while and just uh, complete oversight of mine that you haven't been on the show before. So I'm rectifying that now and very happy to to have you here. I guess we'll start in the obvious place. uh, As people will have just heard, the new record has a real sound to it and it is kind of firmly centered in a place that's pretty close to my heart, which we'll talk about more. But I'm just curious, can you talk about why you have centered an album in this kind of beautiful 70s jazz funk universe? I mean, aside from just being a huge fan of that era, I'm in my room with all of the magical toys from that era. And it just made sense. I mean, the thing is, my journey from pianist to keyboardist is really only fairly recent. I mean, I would say the first time I really, really got into the Fender Rhodes was only about five years ago. So this has been fairly quick, but I've sort of amassed this collection of keyboards and the sweet spot for so many of these instruments is smack dab right in the middle of the seventies. And that's also right where I love listening to. I mean, you know, so it all made sense. And I really wanted to showcase this. And also my husband, Jake Reed, who's a drummer, he collects vintage drums. And, you know, we went to a studio that had actual vintage mics and et cetera, et cetera. So put it on vinyl. It all just kind of made sense to do it that way. 
And I do want to talk more about the gear in a few minutes, but I I wanted to just mention, like in the press release for this album, it mentions people who to me are are like kind of standard bearers of this music, like Herbie Hancock and Richard T, who I dearly yeah. love. But it also mentions other bands I really, really love that are bands of the right now, people like Wolfpack and Scary Pockets and bands that are really steeped in this kind of what I consider a very like 70s funk sound, but who are also like, particularly in Wolfpack's case, like filling arenas and things like yes, that. Yes, I am. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah, so having a moment. It's awesome. Yeah. Do you do you have any feeling for why this kind of resurgence is happening? I mean, absolutely. I, I do feel like there is just a we're having a nostalgia for all kinds of decades. I mean, I feel like it's moving really fast, you know, in the sense of like, it's not like the seventies are back and they're going to be back for 10 years. I feel like all of a sudden there's a moment where the nineties are big and like the eighties, you know, and it, it seems to be happening very quickly, but, but nostalgia in general, I think is very in right now. I don't know. I mean, just a hearkening for the past for simpler times. And I just think, the in, the social media stuff and just the zany world that we live in, you know, we want that prior time. We want to experience it again in some way or, or you know, just have a, a nice memory of like, oh, yes, I remember back before I had a smartphone and life was very different. But yeah, I just think, I mean, analog is definitely having a moment, you know, vinyl sales are through the roof and I feel like everybody has a record player now. And so that music is from that time period and it all kind of makes sense i guess yeah it's wild to me to watch like gen z folks you know making tiktoks about steely dan and i just think yeah, <laughs> I, I did not see that i if i had been trying to ride some kind of wave like four years ago i would not have predicted the steely dan wave as one of the ones you could ride but it is it's pretty amazing <laughs> Steely dan is timeless, <laughs> no, that is, it's, yeah. timeless. it's gonna be around <laughs> So because this is an audio medium, what people uh, can't see is the all the keyboards behind you that you were just referring to. And the sound of this album, I think, is really kind of spot on, like even just the way the snare drums sound in addition to the keyboards, like it, everything about it speaks to that era that we were talking about that I really love. I just think it, it's recorded so well in addition no, to thank you. being thank performed you. very well. Yeah, you're welcome. I've always heard that a lot of kind of classic keyboard instruments can be quite challenging to like make function properly and keep in tune and all of those kinds of things. So just from a technical point of view, were there challenges to making this record that that oh. don't pop up on other albums that you've done? Absolutely. I mean, you are so spot on there. That's the thing is the vintage instruments. And I think also truly that is part of the love affair with 
with the past and with vinyl and analog and these vintage instruments is they have faults. They're not perfect. They're unreliable. Things change. It's very human, you know, and we love someone faults and all. And it's the same thing with the instrument. It's like, wow, here's something that's very heavy, you know, very awkward, goes out of tune all the time, like very expensive. And yet I want it. I need it. (laughs) (laughs) I could just have a little plug in that weighs nothing that I could use anywhere. Not exciting, you know, but yeah, I mean, absolutely there. You know, the, the studio that I've been building, I, (laughs) I really don't like to take my instruments out of there because they are so sensitive and just lugging them around, throwing them in a car. I mean, things happen and then it's very expensive to get repaired. There's not that many people who are great at, repairing you know who do it the right way so then there's a waiting list and it's all just this whole thing yeah during during recording there's always issues so i i like to use effects pedals attached to things and you know the impedance and like all the stuff going on with these vintage instruments you almost never know exactly what it's going to sound like until you plug everything in and it's different based on the room and the voltage and like everything going on and so that alone is a challenge because I can have my pedal set up in my studio and it sounds great. I take them all somewhere else. It sounds different because if it's a different Fender Rhodes with different pickups and a different year, it actually functions differently, which is just crazy. So there's no reliability. And same thing with like using, I didn't really use mini Moog that much on this album, but I use it a lot here. And when you turn it on, the tuning is different than an hour after that which is crazy, <laughs> you know, so it's, you have to tune it. And, and anytime you find a sound that you love, it's not guaranteed that the sound is still going to be there next time you try to dial it in. that this kind of evolution into I'm I'm not sure if evolution is the right word that kind of implies a direction but this this change in your music into becoming a keyboardist as well has happened over the last five or so years is it is it a fairly different even just like a tactile experience to play these instruments from playing the piano oh, I mean you're yeah, you trained yeah. your hands to do a thing for so long and now I you're know. doing a thing on a totally other set of instruments No, but I'm glad you asked that. And I do think that is part of the love affair with owning the actual instruments because each one does feel slightly different. And because of that, you play it differently. It responds differently. You think differently when you're playing it. I mean, if I were to play all of these sounds on a MIDI controller, it's not, you know, the thing is an organ, a Hammond B3 feels completely different than a Fender Rhodes. And so you're going to play it differently. You're going to respond differently. And of course, acoustic piano is different again. 
And yes, you're right. I did train most of my life on an acoustic piano, but it's similar enough that, you know, but certainly, you know, more of the sort of fun, percussive, funky stuff just feels so natural on these vintage keyboards, especially like the clavinet, you know, you just can't help but be funky on one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sound that demands a certain kind of playing. That's for yeah. Sure. <laughs> for sure. What, what spurred you in this direction five or however many years ago? What, what started pushing you toward these things? Well, you know, you say you didn't like to use the word evolution, but I mean, I, personally, I actually do like to use it because I feel like we are constantly evolving, you know, just <laughs> by nature. That is the nature of being alive is constant change. It's constant reinvention of yourself in a way. And I just was craving more, you know, I wanted more sounds. I wanted broader tonal palette. And of course I was listening to music that was using all sorts of keyboards and I wanted to get into that. I wanted to understand it better and what better way than just to do it (laughs) to dive in. Right. But I think it, you know, like many things in life, the hardest thing to do is just the very first step. And it seems odd to look back and, and realize, you know, I had some kind of hesitancy or a block or whatever, you know, it, it, it took a moment where Jake helped me sort of, you know, we had a friend who had a Fender Rhodes and we borrowed it and Jake helped, he finally was like, let's set it up in the garage. I bought you this like effects pedal to play around with. And then he kind of pushed me into the pool, so to speak. Right. But as soon as I got in, I was like, oh, okay. And then the floodgates opened and I'm like getting pedals and I'm getting synthesizers. I'm doing all kinds of stuff, but it, you know, it took that nudge from someone else to kind of get it all going. <laughs> and tell me what that was like in the early days as you were discovering new sounds and new ways of playing and finding these effects pedals and things. I, I'm, I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. Well, you know, it's actually quite similar to my experience learning jazz kind of at a later age, because I didn't improvise until I was 18 or something like that, you know, first year in college. And I felt like I was able to approach things with still that very childlike, open-minded approach where I'm not worried about, like, I don't know enough to know what I don't know at that point. You know what I mean? Sure. So I'm literally just turning knobs and stuff. Like, I don't know what anything does. I don't know what, like, oh, that sounds cool. I don't know why, which was actually really kind of freeing because I, you know, I wasn't all hung up on like, oh, well, if I turn up the gain or like, if I, you know... I just was like, what's this knob do? And I either liked it or I didn't, or I just pressed, I started with like, like on the OB6 synthesizer, they have all these beautiful presets. So I would just start there instead of thinking, oh, I have to be all groundbreaking and build from the bottom up. No, I'm just going to start with a preset. That's cool. I like it. And so I really just had a lot of fun. It was just like a kid in a toy store, just playing with stuff and not, not trying to be too intellectual about it, I guess would be the word. I tend to be the kind of gear user who I I know how to use all my gear just well enough for it to do what I want to do. And I also, I know other people who want to know exactly how everything works and be able to go deep, which end of that spectrum, or are you in the middle somewhere? I have a affliction, which is that I want to know everything and I want to go impossibly deep, but I also understand that once I start on that journey, I'm not satisfied until I go all the way. So it's almost like better for me to just not know and have fun until I'm ready to commit the time to go 100%. Because that did happen with 
with the analog sense where I really wanted to like, I, you know, why is this not doing what I think it's going to do? Or, or how can I, you know, if I have a sound in my head, how can I build that sound from scratch? And I went all the way back to like, what is a sine wave? You know, I mean, I was going deep. I was like pulling out actual physical textbooks that I had and like all this stuff. And yeah, I learned a lot, but I still like, there's still just, it's sort of like insurmountable to know all of that all at once, of course. But I would very much like to fully understand synthesis. And it's just a journey. The thing is, I just have so much fun playing and there's still so many things I want to do that as much as I would like to move to a cabin in the woods and just learn about (laughs) synth processing for months, that's not practical. (laughs) No, that's probably true. (laughs) I'm not sure if there is a Rick Wakeman style synth cabin out there somewhere that somebody's in right now, but I hope I hope that they are somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A quick break from the interview to remind you that you can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, and other behind-the-scenes updates. Become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. In addition to hosting this show and a few other things, I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. I've done that for many of the people you've heard on this show and for others, including non-musicians. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples and get in touch. And now, back to the episode. is your first time on the show i want to just step away from this record for a minute and we we won't go like all the way back to childhood or anything but i do want to just fill in a few biographical details for folks so just by coincidence i am in charlottesville virginia as we're recording this and you went to college here and you mentioned that it wasn't really until your first year in college that you started improvising and we don't have to fill in all the years from then to now but i am curious about how that those first steps happen it's weird to look back right because you (laughs) It's sort of like you don't know which memories are accurate and which ones you started to invent and color as you look back on them. But I do know that I did not know how to improvise. That much was clear. What I'm not clear on is how much I knew about it in general as a concept, because I just remember, you know, I was like, oh, improv, that sounds good. And there was an audition for the jazz band and I showed up, just an open audition and I showed up for it. And I played just something that I had memorized. So at home, I would sight, I've always been a really good sight reader and I would sight read piano scores, you know, like piano reductions of big band charts. So I was playing like Ellington and Gershwin and all kinds of like the standards and stuff at home, but just in piano score format, no improvisation. So whether I knew that people were improvising or not is unclear. What is clear is I did not know how to do it. 
So I show up to the audition and I just play something I had memorized. And John Durth was like, oh, that's cool. And then he puts a lead sheet in front of me. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and will you tell people who might not know what that is before you continue? Yeah, to start? absolutely. So a lead sheet is sort of like a roadmap. I mean, it's a very reduced, like, like a Cliff's Notes version of a piano piece or any kind of musical piece. So for example, a piano score would have right hand and left hand fully notated. There's dynamics, there's markings for how to play, when to play, like tempo, everything, everything is in there. Lead sheet will have chord symbols. So if you don't know how to read those, you're already in trouble. That was me. And a melody. (laughs) So there's really not a lot of information, but it's enough if you know the style and what to do, which I did not. But fortunately, he saw my passion for music, my interest, and he was very encouraging, which is so beautiful because he could have definitely just been like, no, come back later. But he said, why don't you stay? But also, please take jazz piano lessons with Bob Hallahan, who used to teach at the university there. And I did. And it all started off from there. I know the the audience of this show is a real mix of like professional musicians and then just music fans. Yeah. And I think your path through music, I think, is kind of instructive or at least interesting because you you many times tried to do other things in the world of music (laughs) besides just say, I'm going to play an instrument and like compose and perform. You did other Uh things in that world, education, kind of on the business side, those things. And I'm curious about how you navigated that. Like, were you, were you feeling like it was just a step too far to put your eggs in the basket of I'm going to be a full-time musician? Uh, Anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah. You know, it, it's it, it. That is an interesting question because I really feel that it hasn't been until quite recently that I have fully embraced, fully committed to the artistic lifestyle. I mean, in the sense of I'm not doing anything else. I am fully committed to this. You know, I am an artist. I'm a pianist. I'm a composer. Like that is what I do. Whereas before, I used to be like, oh yeah, but I also teach or I also do this or, you know, it's like a a plethora of stuff. But now I'm like, no, this, I'm working on music, working on my art. Like that's what I'm doing. And I think, you know, maybe depending on your background or how you were raised, that is not a normal thing to do. You know, that's a sort of a fantasy. And unfortunately, just culturally being an artist is, is sort of a fringe choice or something that maybe seems questionable. (laughs) And, you know, I would say that I came from a pretty traditional family background and my parents were not especially musical. So there was no discussion of music as a career choice. They fully supported my interest in it, but it was never discussed in the sense of, well, what do you plan to do with your music? You know, for real. And I didn't have any role models growing up aside from teachers. And I went to go out to, like, my parents would take me to see classical concerts. So I would see orchestras or quartets or whatever. But that was it. So, you know, there's so many other things you can do in the music industry. And I had no clue. So I didn't really have a good landing point to aim towards, if that makes sense. So, you know, all I had was a clear passion for it. Like, I loved to play music. And that was kind of all I knew for a really long time. 
and I wasn't sure quite what to do with it. And so I think I was trying to balance some of those traditional notions that were put in my head, you know, in the sense of get a quote unquote real job or I don't know. So that's why, you know, I dabbled in like a music marketing job, clearly knew it was not for me. But then after that, you know, I went back to school because education was something that I understood that my family understood. So that was something that made sense, like teaching. But then I, you know, I realized teaching was also not for me. And it's just sort of like, one of those things that to someone on the outside, perhaps is very obvious that I should just focus on playing and composing, <laughs> you know, exclusively. But it just took me personally a long time to fully commit to that. But now I'm so happy and it's so exciting. If it were easy to realize who we're supposed to be, we'd all be doing it. Right? So, yeah, yeah, I guess right. I guess that's right. But that's the thing is I, you know, I appreciate you saying that because I don't regret that, you know, in a way I'm sort of a late bloomer. <laughs> I don't because now I'm, I'm so much more confident about everything because I'm just older. I've been doing it so long. I've like gone through so many iterations of it that it's like, oh, no, no, this is it for sure. You know, I'm very sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I get the, the way in which you're using the phrase late bloomer there, but that's, that's not to suggest that all those things you did, like the person I'm talking to right now is a product of all those other choices that you made and right, how yeah. you are approaching the music you make now might be totally different if before that you hadn't taken these other. That's very true. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Everyone is on a different path and I'm happy to be on mine. come back to keyboards now uh, just reminding folks that that's the name of the album and i want to ask about writing the music for this record you talked about the fact that playing these actual instruments influences the way you play can you talk about how it influences the way you write the thing with the fender roads is right away i started using effects pedals with it and each pedal has its own signature thing and ways that you can use it and that certainly affects how i play and how i write and think about it you know, if you have like this beautiful delay or echo pedal or reverb or whatever, you can just play one chord and kind of tweak or tweak stuff. And it's amazing. You know, you really don't have to do too much technical stuff. Or I really like to use a wah pedal and that's like super funky. So learning how to use that, like the technique of using that and then learning that literally just playing the same note over and over, but using the wah pedal to make it interesting is its own technique where... If I just sit at an acoustic piano and play a note over and over, it can get kind of boring maybe. <laughs> but just little things like that. Um, you know, for example, like the Whirly, the Whirlitzer, I feel it's very sweet and very soulful, subtle. And so I tend to play more, I don't know, um, melodies in that style, you know. 
which is more like almost reduced, more quiet. And on the roads, to me, that's just kind of fun. Like, I don't know, <laughs> just a different style. You've managed something that very few improvising musicians I know have managed. And I know that you've managed this because it's one of the main ways that I learned about your music, which is that you have a real presence on social media. And <laughs> when I'm scrolling through, I, I I love TikTok and I use it all the time. And when I'm like scrolling through TikTok or scrolling through Instagram, and I'm suddenly watching you like play some super, you know, badass, fun keyboard thing. And I think like, yes, like that, given what we were talking about a little while ago about like, this is the era of 14 year olds loving Steely Dan. This is the moment for the kind of music that you are making, at least that we're talking about with this record. I don't know if you'll even have an answer to this question because I feel like this is the holy grail question, but I'm so curious about how you built up the following that you have, because it seems to be really quite a difficult thing to attain for folks who, who play improvised music. Oh, I completely agree with that. And I'm sorry to say, but I have no clue. <laughs> I mean, I will tell you, you know, some of the things that I did, but I mean, I, you know, I think I got lucky and it's the right moment. I don't know. Right time, right place. I have no idea. I'm still surprised by it. You know, maybe you're right. Like, uh, it was just the perfect combination of resurgence of interest in vintage instruments. And I started playing that. I will tell you that I was very consistent about when. I posted generally how long I only did reels, you know, so there was a consistency to it. Like everything sort of looked the same, you know, I mean, I'm always sitting the same way and, you know, there's, there's, I think something to that, but yeah, I wish I had the secret, secret answer, you know, to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't air that part of the interview. If you did, I would just, you know, of course I would steal it would and, and it, capture yes. it for myself. Yeah. Uh, but I'm my guess is that because of the size of your online following, my guess is that you have interactions with listeners or v listeners slash viewers in this case that many improvising musicians don't have. And I would imagine that that's particularly true of interactions. And you correct me on all of this, but I would guess that it's true of listeners who aren't necessarily like wouldn't say that they're jazz fans or that kind of thing. Right, right, right. So yeah, I'm curious how that's been for you. First of all, if that's even true, and if it is, what that's been like. Well, you know, it's been actually very inspiring and very encouraging, and I feel like it's just a great reminder that music really transcends everything. I mean, because people will remark on what the music made, how the music made them feel. So I get a lot of comments about that, whether it's oh, this piece made me happy or this piece helped me through a hard time or this piece inspired me to get back to my own music or whatever it is. Rarely am I ever getting any comment about like, oh, was that like a G flat? You know, like no, I'm not getting any of those. Like very, very rarely, you know, or just and even about gear. It's only a few questions about gear here and there. Most of the time, it is just regular folks chiming in saying, I like this or you know, you make me feel a certain way. I don't know. So it, it's, um, it's very encouraging because that means it's much more universal than the, you know, kind of theory or technique breakdown that, you know, is also a thing that people post a lot about. But, you know, I, I did do like a couple tutorial videos, but I, all I really did was just show my hands from above and then provide the music. <laughs> I didn't really break it down too much because I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I am more interested in connecting with people just on an emotional level, a physical, like energetic level. You know, I, I don't need people to know what key I'm in or, 
you know, what meter I'm in. If they want to know, I'd love to talk about it. But my main thing is just creating a connection somehow and just communicating how I'm feeling to, you know, how the music makes me feel. A lot of people remark like, oh, you look so happy. And the thing is, I am happy. (laughs) Like the music really does make me happy. I really do love to play. And I do think it comes across. That I love that you said all that. It, it that feels so much more like the kinds of interactions that cause people to go into music in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly I went into music because I loved it and because it makes me feel good to play it, and it makes other people feel good to hear me play it when I feel like. I mean, you know, it's all like a <laughs> we all feed off of each other's energy, kind of. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. talking about social media and you were mentioning how you uh, post Instagram reels and my understanding from you is that those reels are in fact a lot of the source material for what we're hearing on the album keyboards right yeah so I told you that I just my only trick quote-unquote was just to be very consistent but because I wanted to post three times a week that's quite frequent and I didn't want it to take up my entire life. So I I limited the entire process to an hour, maybe two. And what I mean by the entire process is come up with what to play, film it, record it, edit it, you know, and then I'm done. So that's a lot to do in two hours. And because of that, I couldn't be too precious or complicated about what I'm going to write or play. Generally, it was something I could think of and remember very quickly. So it would have one, two, maybe three sections max. But the thing is, I was showcasing a sound. And when it's a sound that you're focusing on, you don't need a lot of complicated harmonic stuff going on. You know, a melody is nice. But if I'm just playing like a D minor, oh, here we are getting into theory. (laughs) Watch out, folks. But if I'm just playing a single sound, but it has a different, uh, it has an interesting like timbral quality, then, you know, it doesn't really need to change that much. So anyways, all that to say is that I could sort of create these songs fairly quickly. But it showed me that unlike a lot of the material I was doing prior to that, you know, on my previous records, that I did not need to be creating these complex compositional forms or coming up with new ideas all the time or different sections or like, you know, changing things, I really could be quite basic. And it was still very interesting. You know, if we think about it, so many of the great songs out there aren't necessarily complicated songs. And why should they be? You know, that's one of those things I learned later in life is that music doesn't have to be hard. (laughs) It doesn't have to be hard. 
But it turns out, you know, I, I started getting a lot of interest in these sounds and these videos and a couple of them really took off. And then things started growing from there. And later in the year, Jake, again, Jake with the great ideas, Jake Reed, my husband and drummer on all of my projects. He was like, hey, you should make a record of all these videos that are doing really well. And I was like, oh, yeah, duh, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I had to flesh out the songs a little bit because the reels are only 90 seconds, but not much. And we just went in with a live band and recorded everything in the same room. So that's more of the vintage experience. Whereas, you know, during the reels, I'm doing everything in my studio as layers. I'm just layering everything by myself. Let me jump in there on the word layers, actually, because this album has lots of layered keyboards, but you also perform this music live. And now I grew up as a prog rock fan watching, generally speaking, white dudes standing in front of <laughs> massive towers of keyboards, you know, playing one with their foot and one with each wow. hand and, you know, one with the nose. But I'm curious when you take this really densely layered music and port it over to the live experience what what happens to it how do you how do you achieve however much of it you are trying to achieve so i mentioned that when we went in to record this album we did do it live in the same room for the i guess you could call the bass tracks the foundation of the track and i i do still try to you know conceptualize a song where it can be performed live you know the the extra layers are fun and they definitely add the glue but the song still can exist in a reduced format. You know, if I'm just playing it solo, you're still going to know it's that song. But certainly, you know, a lot of the thing that's so great about going deeper into music is you realize there's all these little elements that maybe you don't even notice, but are just like the cohesion. You know, it brings everything together. Like a lot of times it's um, like a rhythm guitar part that doesn't even have a pitch. It's just like, it's almost like a percussion part, you know, or there's the, the, the organ pads that are sort of bringing in harmonic warmth to everything, but maybe you don't even hear it. So I was doing a lot of those overdubs separately, but then when we went to go live, we knew we needed to have something. And I didn't want to be the prog rock <laughs> person playing with my foot and all that stuff. So we thought about adding another keyboard player, but then we decided to actually add our friend, Andrew Sinewick, who's a guitarist. And I... I mean, first of all, it helps that we're all friends and we all work together. So we already have a thing. But I also like the idea of not having any other keyboards so that I can be the keyboard focus, you know, and then Andrew just provides a whole different thing, all guitar stuff. And it's ended up becoming really a great working band. And, you know, this is the band I've been touring with and doing shows with and hopefully another record with we will do the four of us. So, yeah. We uh, were just about to close, but we've made it through the entire interview without ever mentioning the name of the bass player on this record. So will you tell us about Sean? The bass player on this record is Sean Hurley, who is just an amazing bassist, big time session guy, has worked with Jake for a long time and Andrew for a long time, sort of separately. But recently, we've all really started working together on a variety of things, not just this record and my own music, but different sessions and other kinds of recording projects. And the thing that's so special about Jake and Sean and Andrew, well, not only do they have their own rock band together and they work together all the time, but they all are very much, I hate to use the word perfectionist, but they're just, they're so tuned in to all the little micro details that make music great. And they're all so, I mean, it's always about the music, you know, there's never any, 
like, oh, I don't like this song or something. You know, it's never like that. It's like, how can we make this song the best possible version of this song? You know, and what does it need? How can we lift this section or how can we, anyways. So it's always exciting to work together because we're always trying to find just the best possible version of whatever we're doing. And the the pocket between all of you is so deep on this record. And it, just uh, at, before we break, go to a close, there, I I wish I had noted it down. Each time I listen to this record, I think, oh, I got to write down which song this happens in. And I have, never have. But anyway, there's one moment where the first time I listened to this album, I laughed out loud in a good way because there's like the most perfect placement of a chime gliss. Oh. And, you know, if you listen, if you listen to enough <laughs> records from the 70s, you're like, when that moment happens, there's just like a little space and into that space is this beautiful. And I could just like, I've never even seen Jake, but I could just imagine like the look on his face. just like, yeah, here's that chime gliss that everybody yep. knows needs to be right here. Oh, yeah. And there's oh lots God. of moments like that. That's like indicative of kind of how this record is for me, because there's lots of moments where it's clear that. Like, that's not just a reproduction of what's expected. That's like, it's there because it it needs to be there and everybody can yeah. feel that it needs to be there. And that's like, what's beautiful about this album to me is that that Thank like you. deep pocket and that kind of shared love of what this music sounds like. I really yeah, like. well, but that's kind of what I was saying too, is it's not just like, oh yeah, sure, I can play funk. It's like, no, no, no. Jake has seriously done his homework of this era. And like you said, what needs to go where, but not only that, it goes so much deeper, you know, it's not just what instrument to play and when, but it's which type of that instrument, like not just play a drum set. It's like, which drum set, which snare, what's the tuning? Is there a, you know, a head on the kick drum, like a front head. And then it's also like, how is it recorded? Because mics were placed differently in different eras of recording and how many mics were used and all this stuff. And he knows all of this. <laughs> so it's just a pleasure to work with them. Well, the beautiful thing is that uh, with all of that in the background, what comes across is just a, a, a immensely fun and listenable album that rewards repeated listening. And my guest has been Kate Dunton. The new album is Keyboards. Kate, it's been such a joy to have you on, and I hope you'll come back and tell us about the next record. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Kate Dunton and a tip of the cap to John Edwin Mason for introducing me to her music years ago. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. You can follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review the Jazz Session wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. I also have a second podcast called A Brief Chat. It's an interview show most of the time, too, but with no specific topic. You can find it at abriefchat.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.